am trying to persuade people the benefits of this. Hiring juniors in pairs. Hire them in pairs. I can't say it loud enough. Hire them in pairs and like 75% of the problems just disappear. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to Indie Rails. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Indie Rails. Our special guest today is Dave Paola of Sierra Rails. Dave, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, happy to be here. I am the founder of Sierra Rails. We are a boutique software development agency that uses everyone's favorite technology to help our clients solve problems. And I've got a bunch of other projects and irons in the fire, but that's, I suppose, how I would introduce myself today. Would you mind telling us maybe a little bit about your background and what you've done prior to this and what kind of led you up to Sierra Rails? I got together with some friends years ago, ancient history now, late 2011. And we were kind of hanging out with the an acquaintance of ours or an, a recent introduction, the founder of Dev Bootcamp. And we were hanging out with the founder of Dev Bootcamp in their offices in Soma, their very first office in Soma during the first cohort. And we were present in the room with people who are now you know, bootcamp executives or alumni themselves, really awesome people. It was like a magical environment. And we ended up working with each other and with some other folks to kind of pilot an online bootcamp. And this was 2012. This is like so long ago now. <laughs> to make a long story short, we ended up iterating quite a bit off of that first version away from an online classroom towards more of a one-on-one mentorship model that at various times and various stages, we call it an apprenticeship. And so my background is basically in the online developer bootcamp world. We had, I think, 3,500 concurrently enrolled students when I left in 2017, mid-2017. And they were eventually acquired and it's all pretty much gone. The acquiring company was acquired and that company got acquired. So now it's all basically (laughs) gone, although I, I am still led to understand that there are still enrolled students going through the program and they're helping people transition from same thing we did, which was to help people transition into technical careers, sometimes in web development, sometimes software engineering and uh, design as well. And so that's kind of my background. I learned a lot there. And Were you a programmer before that? Yeah, I learned to code when I was a kid in middle school. My parents had a Samsung 386. And I remember I went to Borders Books and got a, a MS-DOS for Dummies book, learned how to write DOS batch files, which was the start of it all. <laughs> Did you always want to be a developer or in that arena? It is what I went to school to do, but I wouldn't say that I had like a dream of being a developer when I was a kid. You know, I just like... It's just a fun hobby. Right? I, actually, I think a lot of it was a fun hobby, but it was also as a kid, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I felt like I didn't have a whole lot of control over the world I lived in. And when I realized the power that I could wield with this computer in front of me, it was like a drug. And that's really, if I'm really honest, that's, I think, what led to that as a hobby and a passion. And eventually a career. I did go to school at a great university, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I met a lot of really great people there. That just like added a rocket booster to my career and my life. And then I eventually moved to San Francisco after that in about 2010. My first apartment in San Francisco cost $750 a month. That gives you any indication. (laughs) And we all know what's happened to San Francisco over the last decade. And then basically, I had like a short stint as a software engineer at an online gaming analytics company where I met a couple of other really great people. And then, yeah, we started Block, which was the bootcamp. And were you always doing Rails or have you experienced with other languages? No, I think my first exposure to Rails was, it was in college. I remember we had a seminar, like a, not lunch and learn, but it was just kind of like a fun hacking session where we all got together and 
drank Mountain Dew and ate Cheetos and we'd pick a new technology and we would go through like that technology's introductory hello world tutorial. And that's when I saw the famous build a blog in five minutes web screencast that DHH posted. I think that was probably 2004. I remember that we were using RHTML before ERB. But no, I've been lucky enough to work on projects professionally and for fun in a variety of languages. I learned basic and then Java and then did some stuff in Scala in college, never professionally. I've not done anything professionally on the JVM. I would like to at some point, but I've played around with many different languages and tech stacks and stuff, but I'm a reformed Pythonista. So what's kind of led you up to the point of starting Sierra Rails? I first became aware of it and you this past year sometime. Yeah. I think when you and I first connected, I don't know, maybe a year ago, maybe over a year ago now, I was working with a Dallas... So after I left Block, I kind of bounced around amongst a bunch of different industries and kind of just met a bunch of different people and worked in a variety of different roles. But maybe a year, actually a year and a half ago now, I was working for a Dallas-based startup in the real estate business and had the budget and opportunity to hire a junior engineer who is someone who's now working on my team. And what I don't remember exactly the time that you and I connected, but I remember I was transitioning that job into a client. Basically, I was thinking about, hey, back at Block, I always wanted to hire our own grads. This was a project that was always in the back burner. I was never able to do it. I always thought that it would be one of the more important feedback loops to establish, which is okay, when you hire your own graduates in your own program as a boot camp, you're going to learn what skills they lack real fast. And you're going to be able to feed that lesson and those insights back in your curriculum into how your tutors and your mentors and your coaches behave and how you do assessments and all sorts of stuff. I was never able to quite do it for a variety of reasons, some good, some not good. But I got really excited by the prospect of hiring this new dev and it worked out really well. Not only did it work out well, but it really rekindled my desire to figure out how to make a living in this segment. And was that the idea then is to have some sort of agency or boutique firm? Well, sort of, yeah. The idea was good artists copy, great artists steal. And I remember back at Block, there was always one company that we really wanted our grads to get hired into, and that was Pivotal Labs. If any of you remember Pivotal Labs back in the day, I think they're gone now. But yeah, they had a really great reputation in general. But they also had a great reputation in this particular niche, which is like every boot camp on the planet wanted their graduates to get hired on the Pivotal Labs team because they knew how to do it really well. And they acknowledged that it was different than hiring an undergrad from a computer science program or just an experienced engineer, right? And so they had a more structured process. They had a highly intensive onboarding process. They hired them in pairs. And I always thought that like one of the best engineers to hire, depending on your, you know, your needs, would be to like find someone who's been at Pivotal for 18 months and go poach them. That would always be like my goal when I was hiring. And so the idea of Sierra Rails was, hey, I'll just go build the next version of Pivotal. How naive is that, right? That was the, uh... <laughs> you got to be a little naive to get started. That's right. Yeah. yeah like, oh, I have this job. Maybe they'll become a client instead of a job. And they were okay with that. So when people ask for advice on getting into freelancing, that's one of the first things I say is like, if you have a job right now, you're in your best position and they like you, you're doing good work for them. You're in the best position you are to get your first client. And that's like a much safer way to move into freelancing or agency work than to leave your job and then start looking for new clients. That's good advice. I've noticed like in the past several months, it seems like you've been testing and iterating on your positioning, your service offerings with Sierra Rails. I would love to know 
how that process has gone and maybe what your process is, like what you've kind of developed, like how much of it is a plan that you had in mind for iterating and testing and how much of it has just evolved and then what you've learned from it. I would say that you're right that I have been iterating quite a bit and it's chaos. <laughs> I'll say it that way. It's just complete chaos. <laughs> when did the CEO of Rails officially start? Oh, gosh. Last January, maybe a little over a year ago. Yeah. Something like that. It started as just, hey, I want to be able to hire junior grads in pairs and test that hypothesis. That's what it was all about. It's all about, and it still is like, hey, can I hire juniors in pairs like Pivotal used to? And can I deliver quality software to the clients? Can I over-deliver and under-promise while doing it with these junior developers? There are so many juniors out there who need jobs, and so many of them are good, and yet they can't get jobs. And so like this is like a circle meet square thing or something. I don't get it. And I don't really understand why they aren't hired more. Because there is an executable playbook here that you can run that I feel like I've discovered that it's like a superpower or at least a secret weapon. And anyway, so I don't want to get too off into the weeds on that yet. The question was about iteration. And basically, I'm just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks, trying to find the heat. And I started out with like, hey, well, the client that I had at the time was a legacy app that was built by an international team that was very obviously not Ruby programmers. It was very obvious that they were maybe C++ programmers and they were working inside of a Rails app. Ah. And it was buggy, it was slow. And so what I did there was like, all right, go in, perform open heart surgery, turn the ship around on like the top 10 most important actions and make it successful for the business, right? So I thought, well, maybe I could make a living doing that and got a couple of other contracts or at least tried a couple of other contracts. And I think what I learned from that experience was that while that is something that I can do, that is a much tougher type of project for junior developers to take on, even with really great coaching, right? Yeah, I can see that. That makes intuitive sense to me, but maybe can you lay out why that might be? Well, I think it's a bunch of reasons, but I think being able to parachute into a code base, figure out what's what, and hold in your head the business objectives, not only making the trade-off decision, but understanding what the costs and benefits are to the decisions ahead of you and what's the test covers look like? How do you refactor effectively? These are things that take a while to learn. Yeah, not breaking all the crap around it. Yeah, exactly. Where are the seams? And it is like surgery, right? At least in the couple of apps that I've had to operate on. Can I step back a second and just ask from a high level, what is a junior? When we say juniors, are we talking about somebody who's just getting started in Rails, someone who's been playing with it for a couple months, has a couple of years of experience? What do most people determine that to be? That is a great question. And I think it is different depending on who you ask. So where I'm thinking about this from is how do hiring managers think about it? When you ask a hiring manager or like an engineer who's been put in charge of recruiting their next engineer for their bench of talent, I think I would say that the majority of people in that role would probably say bootcamp grad. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only people that I like working with, right? Because I've worked with bootcamp grads. Obviously, I've worked with self-taught people as well. But I think of it as like someone who's trying to land their first real job as a software developer. It doesn't mean young. It can mean old or young or middle-aged. It can mean pick any other demographic. It can mean anything. But I think it means like they don't have their first real job yet. So if we jump back to... Okay, so that you kind of went through this first process, this first round realize that this kind of project is kind of difficult to bring in early career people, juniors into. What was your next strategy or where'd you kind of go from there? 
Yeah, well, I still need to pay the bills. So Sierra Rails is still very much alive and well, and I'm growing it very incrementally and modestly. That's one of the things I've also learned coming from the world of startups where you tend to build products. Block was not really a product exactly, but I think you get the gist. Growing an agency is different than growing, for example, a SaaS business, right? What I realized was, okay, well, I do still need to grow this because I still need to make a living and I still want to be able to hire and employ grads, but it's going to limit my scope of impact. It's harder than I thought. That's a lesson I have to relearn every couple of years, it seems. It's like, no, you can't just build it and they will come. Like You have to build it and then market it and sell it and iterate on your marketing and iterate on your positioning and your optics and your brand and your value statement and blah, blah, blah. And so what I've done since then is actually, okay, think about how can we bring more junior developers into the fold? What is their primary problem? Why aren't they landing these jobs? Is it totally because of the macroeconomic climate? Is it totally because nobody wants to hire them? Or is it something else? Is this, are there other problems there? And so what I've done is over the last couple of weeks, actually, this is fairly fresh, is to launch a pilot of a invite-only community for early career developers, those folks who want more experience and want to work on a team, but don't have experience working on a team. They're often working, as many are, on their own side projects, solo, by themselves, they're selecting the project to work on based on the technology they want to learn, because then they think, well, if I learn this technology, then I'll maybe get the job that I'm seeking. And so what my goal is, I have maybe six people now, six junior devs in this community. We're running it like a real team. It's a simulated team. We have daily standups. We do code review. We have office hours. We're working on the Ruby for Good CASA project, which is a court-appointed special advocate. It's an open source application that is a real code base with years of history behind it has its own dark corners and cobwebs and skeletons in the closet like any real code base does. It's not your own solo project that you've been crafting yourself. And it has real users. Every Friday afternoon, there's a stakeholder meeting where we get on a Zoom call with the people using the app and we hear directly from them, how is the app working? Are there any new bugs that we should be aware of? And we get to talk about the stuff we've shipped over the last week, that kind of thing. And so it's really fun. And it gets them real experience on a real app and they pair up on it. And the goal here is to get every single one of these folks a job based on this experience. They're learning how to communicate. They're learning how to talk at daily standup. They're learning that coding isn't just writing new code. It's like, oh, I have to figure out how this code works. The tests are flaky. Why isn't this GitHub action thing working in Docker like it works on my machine? All those things that we're all aware of that are not obvious, they're now learning in a real world environment. So that's where I've landed now and we'll see how it goes. I'm actively recruiting both senior engineers today to join our ranks and to help us mentor these folks because I can't do this alone, so that we can support more and more juniors. That's the plan. That's awesome. I feel greedy asking this question, but what's the payoff for you? What's the payoff for like another senior engineer that comes into it to help with something like that? How can we incentivize people to make this work and continue to grow and build? Maybe it's a better question. It's a very reasonable question that I think is better discussed in public like this. I've witnessed in the technology industry in a variety of different sub-niched communities within the technology industry. like Talking about money is like evil and you're not allowed to have an incentive. It has to everything be totally altruistic. And I understand that. And to be really honest with you, like the reason that I'm involved is partially altruistic, probably 50% altruistic. I have had mentors in my life and my career that have materially changed my trajectory and I want to pay that forward. But on the other hand, like I can't just volunteer my time. And so we do have to make this a sustainable project. Now, I don't know if that means it's going to scale like crazy. I've even been looking into different corporate structures, like maybe B Corp or some kind of a nonprofit. I'm not quite sure yet, but I would like to place them and take a cut 
I would like to either do contract to hire. I think we're exploring that option with at least one client right now where they'll contract through me for the first 30, 60, 90 days. And then I'll take a cut of the salary after that. And if that happens, then everybody who's volunteering their time is going to get paid. <laughs> right? Yeah, Everybody um, wins, right? Yeah, exactly. Literally, everybody wins. So that's the plan. We're not there yet, but I feel really confident that we will get there. We'll see. It's very early and I'm very excited about it. I'm always watching for companies or orgs that have a really clear sense of purpose. And right from the get-go, seeing what you're doing just had a really clear purpose to me. And it's the kind of thing that people get behind, I think, when they really understand what you're trying to accomplish and the vision. And it's not like separated from the fact that you also need to be able to make a living and do well, hopefully. But just the fact that you've got this clear purpose that has a broader impact on the community, like I think made me immediately want to connect to you and support you and find ways to help just because this matters. And it matters to so many people. And so many people are saying things, but you're doing something in a big way by yourself, <laughs> like by yourself doing things. That's pretty awesome. I appreciate those kind of words. I will tell you that I'm not doing it by myself. I do have lots of other people helping. I am very poor at talking about this stuff in public. I am not good at marketing. We're going to be bringing on some other people to help with that because there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. I'm much more of a one-on-one type of guy. I do much better in one-on-one conversations. But I will tell you on your one point, I was talking to somebody about this earlier this morning, actually. I have forgotten. I've been disconnected from anything really remotely to do with education for a couple of years now. But I used to do like so many pitches every week. I would do like pitches to students, pitches to investors, pitches to recruit engineers and so on to join the team. And I have forgotten how wonderful it is to work in an area that attracts people who want to do good. It's not like we're all altruistic. It's not like everyone just wants to do nonprofit work. I mean, like the good people who donate some of their time or whatever to just like make the world a better place. It's so much better to work with those people than with people who don't care about that. <laughs> yeah. It's lovely, honestly. And to your point about clarity of purpose, I don't even have like a mission or vision statement right now, but everyone seems to grok what we're doing. So it's very exciting. Yeah, it definitely comes across. I love it. Have you guys ever hired juniors? Have you ever worked with junior developers? I have not. Yeah, not first time. I've worked with like some early on developers, but... Maybe I could persuade you to join our mentorship team here in public on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like I wouldn't be lying to tell you that I've been considering it, thinking like, oh, could I do this? Yeah, you should. It's fun to watch those moments where you realize like, oh yeah, this isn't about code. This is about dealing with frustration. Or it's about how do you figure out where to start when you can't reproduce a bug? Those are the things that like you realize that you know, but you don't realize you know until you are talking or trying to show someone how to go about a problem, right? And it's one of those things that it's wonderful to learn myself from the juniors. It's like, okay, yeah, I need to do better at explaining my thought process here because <laughs> I've never had to externalize how I do this before. You know, it's wild. It's challenging. <laughs> Most of my career, I've been solo or indie, but on certain projects, I have the opportunity to work with teams or to hire someone on to help. I would love to learn how to do that better and how to be a better team member and a better manager, I guess is what I would be called. Yeah, like all those things you just mentioned about delegation and finding the fit for the person to get in and figure out a bug or start a feature. There's so much more than just explaining the feature itself. Yeah. I will say that I was speaking with somebody recently. There's a project called Engineer Kit, which is like kind of like a apprenticeship 
curriculum in a box type of thing. That's really good. I highly recommend checking it out. They've got an awesome Discord community. They're lovely people. I believe they've also started a mentor training program recently as well. I was talking to one of the guys about it and contemplating both going through it myself and also like just kind of figuring out, okay, for this community, this agency of learning that I'm running, like if I am going to bring on more junior engineers, then I'm going to need to bring on more coaches or mentors as well. And how do you take somebody who doesn't know how to mentor and make them good at mentoring? Well, it's kind of a similar process. Yeah. It's like you have some patterns that you identify and you have coaches for them who mentors the mentors, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> coaches the coaches. So one of the things for me, I've also worked mostly solo much of my career and learned on my own. There's so many barriers to learning by yourself. And if I could go back and tell Jeremy in his 20s some advice, it would be to either go work at companies where you've got a team, get mentorship, but like don't stop doing it yourself, always banging your head against the wall. There were just so many things. And thankfully, especially in the Ruby and Rails community, the amount of great content out there, I just consumed every blog post and every video I could find. And so much of that helped, but it was still slower than the times that I've worked with other developers and you just fast forward a bunch of stuff when you either are watching someone solve a problem or reading someone else's PRs or just in a conversation, they tell you this one thing that you didn't realize. So much of that, it just boosts your speed. And man, I think just of all the things I could have learned a lot faster if I'd done it that way. So that really matters to me. Like I think knowing that people just struggle and sometimes... I don't know. For me, it was just like, I love this so much. I would do it no matter what. I can't stop building on the web. But for people that maybe don't have quite that same level, but want to do it, you've got so many barriers. It can just be so disheartening and eventually make you feel like, well, maybe I can't do this. I guess I've had plenty of those times too, where I didn't think I'm not good enough to do this. I'm not smart enough. I don't understand this. Everybody else seems to get it. And I hate that being able to remove those barriers for other people and help them excel and fast forward. That seems really exciting. One of the things that I think is underappreciated is who you're learning with. Now, I think to your point about learning alone, there's all sorts of challenges associated with learning by yourself. And there's a huge question is like, oh, well, how much time should you spend solo when you're a junior on a team versus how much time should you be pairing and who should you be pairing with? And how do you go about pairing and those types of questions. And I think one thing that I've been really pleasantly surprised by and that I am trying at every possible opportunity to persuade people the benefits of this. And it seems like a lot of people aren't just not interested, but it's a superpower is like hiring juniors in pairs, hire them in pairs. I can't say it loud enough and frequently enough, hire them in pairs. And like 75% of the problems just disappear. The scenario that you were describing, Jeremy, is not just for juniors. It's like, if you are new to anything, if you learn how to play guitar, if you learn how to drive a car, or, you know, I don't know. If you're doing it with someone else who's at a similar level, your ego doesn't get in the way as much. Not afraid to ask questions. Yeah, not afraid of looking stupid, not afraid of like making mistakes. If you're learning how to play piano and like the piano teacher's watching you, and every time you make a mistake, you stop. But if you're playing with other people, you gotta keep going and you, you go through the mistakes instead of stopping and letting them interrupt your flow. And yeah, so like I hear you and I think you're absolutely right. Like it's very tough learning alone. It's part of the art of trying to figure out, okay, I want to learn a thing. I want to hire a junior onto my team. And it's like, well, no, you should hire two of them so that they're not bothering your seniors constantly. And furthermore, that they're not feeling bad about bothering the seniors. Anyway, I think you've touched on something very important and there's a lot of different facets to it. There's so much that you get out of learning in relationship to other people. 
And it's funny because there's the stereotype that programmers, we work in the basement by ourselves with the lights off or something. I don't, you know, like there's that old stereotype and it feels like there is a way that that has been true for me. It's like individualist, isolated on my own, doing my thing, making my stuff. But then the more I've progressed in my career, the more I realize that nothing that I make is really just mine. Nothing that I'm doing that's really worthwhile, you know, is really just me. It's connected to all the open source libraries I use and my clients and their interactions with me and our customers and the feedback loop that we have. And nothing that I do is really just about me. And I wish I'd learned that sooner because I feel like that would have changed maybe my mindset about how I approach building things that isn't really just about me and about how I learn. I don't know. might just be me, but... No, it's not just you. No, I think developers are just like natural problem solvers. And when you're working on something, you just like, you got to figure it out. And sometimes that's, you want to just like crawl in your own space and do that. But being open, I think is the, usually the better route. If you think about a lot of the lore, the mythology, the culture of computer programming, you think back to who those myths are built from it's a very narrow persona and honestly i'm probably a large part of me is part of that persona as i was saying earlier like the reason i got into software when i was a kid is because it felt powerful it gave me power over the world around me and it was that was intoxicating and i remember when notch the guy that started minecraft i remember learning that this was a single guy coding in his basement that sold his indie game to Microsoft for billions of dollars. I'm like, this guy has life figured out. This is my idol. I learned later he's not such a nice guy, but I remember that very vividly because it's like a Greek mythology in my head. But there's that old adage about like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree with you, Jeremy. Like, I wish I had learned that much earlier. I could have used the dose of that earlier in my career for sure. Several doses. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about. It was, I think you had this on your website, but you have a rubric. It was interesting to me because I recently created one as well, because I realized that at least in my circles, I felt like hiring developers was based way too much on code. And if you could write the right code, but the rubric that I wanted to create was more about like personality, willingness to learn. Do they know which questions to ask? Like all these things that don't have anything to do with code. Like, can they just be helpful? Can they fix a problem? Or do they have the desire to fix the problem? Do they want to show their work or they're going to QA it? Things like that I wanted to check for. And I didn't look at your rubric yet, but I was interested to know what's in it or if you can drop us some hits. Because I think it's, you got to sign up for it. It is. I have two things on the website. I have one that's actually doing very well, which is the Junior Developer Hiring Bootcamp. It's like, I don't know, six or seven emails. I referred one of my clients to it. Nice. Thank you. And it's not rocket science, but it's a thing that I've discovered that I have under my belt that a lot of other people don't. And I just learned it from other people. So I'm in a way, I'm just paying it forward. It makes me feel guilty that I'm just passing forward what I learned from someone else. But if it's valuable, it's valuable. The rubric is much looser and much rougher. It's the same thing. It's like, I worked with some great people in my career and I learned this from them, which is like, there's three big checkboxes for me. There's like the process, but then there's like the rubric. And this is not just with engineers. This is like, are they a jerk? If they're a jerk, no go, red flag. And by the way, it's always like, look for red flags and disqualifying factors. Don't specifically search for green flags. So the red flags for me, like no jerks. They have to get emotionally invested in their work. 
not like hustle culture, but like they have to care. And do they have intellectual horsepower? Are they high functioning? That's the three. There's a whole bunch of other things that I look for, but again, those are the red flags. The green flags are like communication skills. I found that many bootcamp grads have significantly superior communication skills to CS undergrads because they've had careers already, or at least they've had jobs and they've worked with lots of different people instead of just designers and product managers and other engineers. Anyway, communication skills, problem solving, technical competencies, that kind of thing. When you say communication skills, are you one of these people that jump on a hardcore line of like async versus sync or written versus verbal or just whatever fits? I struggle with that personally. And I think it very much also ties into remote work versus in-person work. It's tricky. That is a tricky one. I think that if I was an individual engineer on a team with other engineers, and I wasn't aware of all the challenges associated with being, say, a designer working with the team of engineers or a product manager, then I would very easily conclude everything should be async all the time. Most meetings could be emails. And I think that's probably true for, I don't know, 75% of the instances. But there are some instances where that's not true. Clearly, it's not true. It might feel true if I don't totally understand the problems that the other people have with maybe working with me (laughs) or my communication style. A five-minute meeting is way more valuable than writing out a 12-paragraph Slack message. So I'm definitely not a hardcore on either side of this. I will say on a related note that I love working remotely. I love working with my remote engineers now. I was telling you guys before the call that I was very much looking forward to figuring out a time and place to do an offsite because we've never actually worked in the same room together. And honestly, I miss that a lot. I remember the early days of our startup where you were working with six other people in the same room. I sat next to the director of marketing. I sat across from the designer. Whiteboards. and I can't think without a whiteboard. I went to Target the other day to buy a whiteboard because I I didn't have one. I can't think without it. (laughs) I miss having a gigantic one on the wall where you can work with other people. We used to do these retros every Friday afternoon. We'd have wine and cheese and we would get into a room with a big whiteboard and we would talk in a messy fashion about what went well that week, what didn't go so well, and what we're going to do about it. And it was great. It's very tough to reproduce remotely. Very tough. We're doing our best though. Yeah, I think you mentioned in one of your letters that one of the things that you've been focusing on was, I forget what you called it, but it was like a pre-PR where you were talking about the features, you were planning out the work and figuring out all this stuff up front rather than on the back end and the PR. That was pretty cool, I thought. That goes along with communication and stuff like that. Totally. Actually, there's a whole lot wrapped up in that. And again, it's not rocket science. And I didn't. it's basically the original Scrum Agile extreme programming approach, which means... Basically, you have a stricter process where you say, okay, we're going to spike on this first. The spike just means go and do some research. Raise your hand if you've been on a team or a member you know, working with a team that went off you know, had individual engineers go off and code for a week, two weeks, and then have this gigantic pull request at the end. And then everyone's lobbing feedback into the pull request on GitHub. And no one really knows, is this a nice to have, a need to have? Is this a blocker to being merged? Is it not? Do I need to go back and rework this whole thing? It's just a mess. Or worst case, it's way off and didn't meet any of the subjects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, maybe most of it's good, but yeah. And when you compound maybe the 100% async nature of all the communication, it's hard to read tone from text. And some engineers are really passive aggressive. Some engineers are really earnest and it's very tough to tell which is which sometimes. So what we do is the old fashioned way is where we say, okay, we sit down and we talk through the feature work or the bug that needs to be fixed or whatever. And when you're really new to a code base and or new to software engineering in general, 
it can feel really scary to try to make changes, kind of afraid to touch anything. So what I encourage all my developers to do is go write throwaway code, make a new branch. Prerequisite is you have to be good with Git or whatever version, but go off, make a new branch and just play around with it. Try to build the thing and don't worry about making it good. You're not going to open a pull request with this. You're going to get your head around the problem and you're only going to spend maybe four hours on it. And those four hours are so valuable because you're not worrying about getting it right. You're worried about learning about the problem. And then we come back and we say, okay, let's talk about the code you wrote. Let's look at it. Let's pull it up on Zoom. And we say, okay, that's great. That's great. And they're like, oh yeah, I know that's a word. I know that's a word. The first time through this, they're always so aware of where they cut corners and use band-aids. And that's great because that's the point. The point is like, get comfortable with that. And then after that, we say, okay, let's keep 30% of that code. Literally, you can copy and paste into a new branch or you get cherry pick it even if you've been really disciplined with your Git or you just redo it the right way a second time. And when you do the second time, it goes four times as fast because you already know exactly what needs to be done. And you've already talked about the code with your peers, right? So the only thing really that you have left to talk about when it gets to pull request are things that your linter can catch. And so what I found is this massively speeds up the development cycle massively, which clients love, which I love, which they love. Everyone's learning faster. And it's wonderful. I can't believe everybody doesn't do it this way. It makes so much sense. It reminds me of... There's this book, Bird by Bird. It's about creative writing, I think. And the first chapter is called Shitty First Drafts. And I took a lot of creative writing classes in college. And one of the big barriers when you're writing is like getting that first draft out. They say like writing is in the rewriting. It doesn't totally necessarily apply to coding, but I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when you are stuck on, I'm going to make a mistake as soon as I start typing. That is a barrier you get over by saying, no, it's going to be a shitty first draft. It's just, it is. And to be completely comfortable with that and know that it's really in the editing process or the rewrite that you get it right. So anyone stuck there, that makes a lot of sense. Just do the spike. You'll be fine. Just throw code out and get that done as quickly as possible. Then you're through that first version. Now we can come back to revision. That makes a ton of sense. I want to go read that book now. I haven't heard that book and I'm very ravenous about book recommendations. Cool. Um, yeah, it's especially one. ones that rhyme with things I already have in my head or experience. I remember I felt that way a lot about the Stephen King's book on writing. On writing, yeah. I, I never finished it, but I did read. I remember like I was sitting in the chair nodding vigorously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that actually also kind of reminds me of a topic of, you know, one thing that I have honestly struggled to coach my team on, and I would love to hear what you guys think of this, is the work that I do when I'm just coding or doing software engineering. When I like get enough sleep and I eat well, and I exercise and I wake up in the morning, I get caffeinated and I go, I can go, man, especially with rails, the whole so the high <laughs> leverage you get with this technology yeah. is intoxicating. You can go so far and get so much done. And then when I contrast that with the days where I haven't gotten enough sleep, maybe I haven't eaten so well, the difference is like 10 X, maybe a hundred X. And it's the same thing with writing, right? Same thing as like, you got to wait for the inspiration kind of. And I struggle with that because, you know, on the one hand, you know, we work on teams where we are obligated or we really want to deliver quality work regularly at a high velocity. On the other hand, I know that it's unrealistic to expect everybody to be on all the time. I'm not on all the time. So I can't possibly expect other people to be on all the time. But that is a real struggle when you're early in your career. I had a friend of mine that had a really good line yesterday. I was talking to he's one of the guys who used to work on my boot camp and he's a friend and I think he's going to hopefully join this new community. He said something like it's much harder to coast when you don't know anything. 
when you're new and you're still learning every day is an uphill battle, learning new things. And you're getting hit constantly because you didn't know, you didn't know this thing. And you wake up four days into that and you're like, my God, I'm exhausted. I need a day off. It's like, well, if you're a senior engineer and you've been like productive for four days, you kind of can do that sometimes a solo or on a team. But like when you're early, it's genuinely more tiring. <laughs> and so I try to think about that when, when I'm working with juniors is like, have some sympathy. <laughs> It feels like a lot of that is, yeah, maybe around emotion, emotion and energy levels. And that seems like being aware of that has to play into how you lead the team, how you manage people watching for those, which kind of gets back to the issue of if all of your interactions are async or via text-based communications, you're missing that. You're missing energy levels and emotions, which you're going to see mostly through voice and face. And I would argue you're missing out on an opportunity to build for lack of a better term, a connective tissue with your teammates. And when you don't have a lot of connective tissue, it's harder to form relationships. It's harder to trust. And it's harder to assume good intent, those types of things. And those things are crucial for like a really healthy, awesome team. You know, and that's the kind of team I want to be on. I don't want to be on a team where it's easy come, easy go. Everyone just like pops in and pops out at their leisure. That can work. You know, that's fine, but that's not for me. You have to enjoy being together. I feel like that's so important. Maybe earlier in my career, I would have thought that was not important. But when I've seen how teams work, when people genuinely enjoy working together, being together, talking together, that's when teams go fast. And they last. Yeah. Those teams last. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which... There's a loyalty. Yeah. What do companies not understand when they avoid hiring early career folks? I think a lot of companies have been burned. I think it's also important to remember that companies are composed of people, individual people, and each individual person has their own opinion, their own experience. If you are a junior trying to join a team that is comprised of 12 senior engineers who have all been burned by hiring junior folks before, this is going to be a failure. If I think about why individual people have been burned, and I've talked to a lot of these people, many of them have had an experience where they wanted to take a chance on someone early in their career. So they viewed it as charity, which I think the intent is good, but it doesn't feel good. Hard to have a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So they viewed as charity. Sometimes they hire one of them. They don't set the expectations on either side. They don't tell their team why this person is coming on or what's going to be involved. Oftentimes they don't understand what the time investment is going to be. They don't set the expectations with the junior developer saying, here's the first week, here's the first month, here's where I expect you to be, here's how I expect you to do your thing, here's what I expect of you. As I was compiling the list, I like stepped back and squinted at it. I'm like, my God, this is just general management. This is actually not specific to hiring junior engineers. The solutions to these problems are like, be a good manager. It feels like a call out, and I'm not trying to be a call out at, at all. I've been in their shoes too. I've been burned myself. But like, if I think about it, that was just kind of like an interesting pattern. My pattern recognition went off there. And it's like, okay, well, how do you do this better? Oh, well, first of all, you hire them in pairs. Hire them in pairs, hire them in pairs, hire them in pairs. My God, hire them in pairs. Because so many of these things just disappear. Set expectations in the first conversation and make sure your existing team is on board with it. And if you do that, then you're like 95% there. Everything is way better if you do that. You're still going to have you know, maybe a couple people that get through your hiring pipeline that maybe aren't as far along as you thought they were. And you'll have to deal with that. If you're a hiring manager or an engineer and you want more juniors on your team, it's not a transaction. It's a relationship. 
you need to cultivate the relationship and treat it like a long-term investment, just like you would with any other engineer. I think if you do that, you're going to have engineers that are more motivated, more loyal, higher retention, more satisfaction, more effective, faster learners. There's all these benefits that you get, but you don't get them if you treat it as charity and you hire one at a time and they bother their coworkers. Coworkers didn't even know they were going to be coming on board. Coworkers aren't good at mentoring. Maybe the coworkers are already feeling the squeeze of their own projects. Maybe your project management process is such that you have timelines and deadlines to hit. And so if rocket explodes in the launch pad instead of being an awesome long-term relationship. Well, I had a former boss who wanted to bring up hiring more junior folks. He would say, we're going to hire them. They're going to learn all this stuff here. And then they're going to get another job in a couple of years. And all of that investment is thrown away. Which I didn't like to hear, but I didn't necessarily have a response to that. What's your response? That's a true story that can be told by many people very honestly, myself included. It's like not a black and white thing. It's not an all or nothing. It's like, well, there's going to be some percentage of people, regardless of skill level, they're going to arrive in your company, you're going to invest in them, and they're going to leave in a year or less or more. And my first job, I left two weeks before the first year mark because I was young and naive and had no idea how difficult it was to run a team. And all the stuff we talked about earlier about making connective tissue with your colleagues and making long-term relationships. I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to advance myself. So like, that's the people you're dealing with. I don't think they're any different than any other engineer. You want your company to be a place where they can see themselves long-term, where they can forgive the platitude, but like be the best versions of themselves. Learn, be a good manager, learn about how they want to see their scope of impact increase at your company. Learn about where they want their career to be and work hard to try to help them with that. And if you do all those things, you're not going to have many retention issues. People are still going to leave, but hopefully not many of them will because they love working there. You got to pay them too. You can't just have the junior and expect to pay them the entry-level salary for two years. So it is simultaneously tough, but very simple. Like as House used to say, it's simple, but it's not easy. That issue of pay, I'm curious, if you're hiring early career, do you think that the cadence of reevaluation on the pay scale needs to be more frequent for earlier career. I'm just wondering, do you see it as like you're progressing really fast in the first year or two? And do you see it being important for companies to kind of reevaluate and, and update pay along the way for that? I think there's a bunch of different ways to do it. I think the most important thing is to be upfront with the expectations. Okay. If, if yeah. you're hiring an engineer, really any role, and it's your first day on the job and you're talking comp, or you haven't even joined yet, you're talking comp before you get your offer. You want to know, like, how do I get a raise at this company? How do I earn more? And so you got to be prepared to answer that question with the junior or with the senior. What I've done in the past is like, here's your comp. And this is like early stage venture back startup approach, which is not the same approach for every team, right? But this is like, we have, you know, 6 million in the bank and we have a team of 25 and we got to make payroll every month and we're not profitable. Like, how do you do it? The way we did it was, here's your comp today. We will revisit this in one year unless the state of the company materially changes. In other words, we raise a bunch of money or get bought or something, or your role changes materially. Now that can mean halfway through the year, three months in, you get a promotion because you're doing so well, you're knocking it out of the park, you're exceeding expectations, you're doing the job of someone much more senior than you. Yeah, we're going to promote you and we're going to give you a pay raise. But if neither of those things happen, then we'll revisit it in a year and then maybe you'll get your bump. I think you just need to know what the plan is. If you don't know what the plan is and you join the company and you never hear a peep about it, you're going to assume 
that you're never going to get a raise. Yeah. Especially if you're junior. So on this note, there was also a really great blog post from years ago. John Louis Gasset, I think he was involved in Apple before Steve came back, back in the day. He ran a company called BE. They had a product called BEOS that was one of the potential competitors to Next that Apple was going to buy. He has a great blog post on firing well, where he talks about one of the conversations he has in the first day is, here's how you'll be fired if you are. If you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to get three strikes, and then we're going to let you go. And we're going to do it professionally. We're not going to tell anybody. And we expect you to be professional about it too. And it's like one of those things where I've done it a couple of times. I mean, I've had that conversation a couple of times. Thankfully, I haven't had to do a whole lot of firing, but I think it's equally as important to set that expectation up front, right? Hey, it's possible for you to get fired. That is the thing that happens. Here's how it's going to work if you do. We don't want it. We don't plan for it, but here's how it works. On the flip side, here's what we're going to do when we're all high-fiving because of how awesome everybody is performing. Those conversations, for me at least, half of the value was watching someone experience do that before my very eyes. and file that away in my brain and use it whenever I need it. What do you feel like companies are missing out on when they avoid hiring early career? That's kind of a hard question to answer. Like Every company is different, but I can tell you what I think the benefits are. I think you get a better culture. I think you get to see who is comfortable having people ask them stupid questions. Like when you ask somebody a stupid question and you see how they respond, you have engineer A who responds, oh, wow, I never thought about it that way. Great question. Let's explore it together. Versus read the freaking manual. Engineer B says, read the freaking manual. And those are two different engineering cultures. I would much rather work on team A rather than team B. So I think first of all, culture. I mean, that might be the only one that matters. I have somebody recently tried to focus more on long-term investments than short-term ones. And that's one of the things that made this agency of learning community such an obviously good choice for me is that it's a long-term investment in a whole bunch of relationships. And I'll tell you, like the relationships that I've had in my career have come back to me so many times over that it's just so obvious that like this is the right choice. And so I think if you are a hiring manager considering hiring juniors, do it right. Do your best to do it well. Don't do it in a shoddy manner. Don't just expect it to be like an internship and treat it like a long-term relationship. And it will pay dividends for you individually and for your organization. If I'm thinking about this myself and I'm basically solo, like at what size does it make sense to bring in a pair of early career devs? Can I do this as one person? Do I need a certain size of team that this makes sense or a certain level of you know management structure before this can work in a healthy way? It's a tough question. It depends. Like I'm doing it solo. Now that said, we are not the same person. Everybody has different superpowers. And so I think for me, it made sense because I'm totally okay watching a new set of junior developers come on board and tear the code base that I spent a long time building, tear it apart and make it objectively, <laughs> technically less beautiful. But it still meets the objectives of the business. It's still easy to change later. It's just not how I would have done it. You have to be okay with that. There's a lot of people that aren't okay with that. And I get it. That's why it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult. I remember having a conversation with my engineering team at Block years ago. And it was like, maybe it was when I was leaving or something. We were like at a bar having drinks somewhere. And they were asking me questions about like, oh, what about the test suite and the data model and all these, what'd you do differently? And I remember I was just sitting back thinking like, it almost brought a tear to my eye because I'm like, I spent so much time on this code base 
now people have taken it over and many of the things they've done are better than the things I would have done. Many of them are simply different than the way I would have done it. And it's tough when you have your emotion and your ego and your identity wrapped up in your job, it can be very tough to let it go. And it's not for everyone. Jeremy, we talked about this just a podcast or two ago, right? About being too emotionally attached to the work. It really prevents you from excelling in business. Because if you're too married to that idea of I'm going to be this profession, this technician, it holds you back from like managing and helping others succeed. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about that myth of the solo dev building everything myself, my way, my vision. And I've had that. I've had that on a Rails project. I guess my first major Rails app, I spent 10 years on this code base. And there was a point where I was making it difficult for other people to work in the code base because it had to be mine. It was my way. I think I probably stayed an unhealthy amount of time on that code base because it was my thing that I, I just like get a little further, I'll execute exactly the vision I want for this thing. And there was a way that that held me back. It held the business back and held other people back from being able to just let go of that. So I get that. I think I was, would totally be there you know, 10 years ago or even less potentially. And maybe now I have like more experience and a better willingness to just let go of that kind of mentality around building. I think that's a thousand year problem. I don't know of a single human being that doesn't struggle with that in a big way. You know, I even have side projects that I keep just so I can retain some semblance of control over <laughs> how this one yeah. little thing is going. This little, <laughs> you know, my like, little baby here, this is exactly the way yeah. I would do it. <laughs> I got to borrow the control and put it over here in a much more concentrated fashion so I can relinquish control over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's very real. And if your side projects are like mine, you have that one perfect piece of it, but then there's like 50 other things that need to be done or are broken. You know, by the way, when I insist that the side project's code be perfect, it never launches, it never gets users. Exactly. It's yeah. practically <laughs> art, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're aware of it. I've been there. I definitely have been there. I love that you have found this niche. When I think about Rails and early career devs, I think about you. And so I'm curious if you have any advice for other indie rails agencies or consultants about finding niches and specialties i do remember one of our business advisors early on gave us some really good advice you know we were an online developer boot camp we were trying to find more students and he came to us and he challenged our thinking and he said okay where do your students come from today oh, all over the country oh okay how old are they oh we got 17 year olds and we got 55 year olds we got everywhere in between okay what were they doing before they wanted to transition into software engineering? Everything, baristas, school teachers, warehouse workers, truck drivers, you name it. It's like, okay, so what you need to do is you need to find every teacher in the Bumsville, Ohio area between the ages of 18 and 25 who makes this salary band and you go after that niche. Yes. Why didn't we think of that? We eventually found a couple of different personas or segments that we defined. And we built totally different marketing campaigns for those. They had totally different financial forms. In one niche, they would take them 30 days to enroll, and we would only have to pay X dollars to acquire them as a customer. A different niche it was totally organic, but it took 90 days. And so like, I deeply understand the value of niching down. I've never done it successfully yet as an agency. Right now, the clients that I have, it's all greenfield apps. And I'm very happy with those contracts. And I hope to retain those clients for a very long time. 
I hope to help them make their business successful. But I'm also aware that the build new greenfield apps segment is one that is very difficult to make a long-term business out of. And so I'm thinking about that. Like what niche will I choose? Well, my current plan is like, if my clients are happy, like if they have anybody in their networks that they can refer to me, like maybe I could build subject matter expertise in the niches that they inhabit. But I don't know if that will work. I don't know how long it will take. I think it will take a while. Reconnect with me in a year and see how it's doing. (laughs) It's always been a challenge as a Rails consultant to find people who need Rails work because it's so wide. It could be a large corporation. It could be a startup. It could be somebody who just wants to build a back-end Rails app for their organization, an internal tool. And so, you know, what watering hole do you find those people? There isn't one single. I think you made a very good point there, Jess. It's one that I've been thinking a lot about recently is Rails is not a business niche. Rails is a technology niche. And I have struggled to exit the orbit or the gravitational pull. That name, Sierra Rails. Yeah, it's obviously it's a Rails shop. Well, okay. Am I limiting myself? By doing it that way? Yes, I am. <laughs> is that a good decision? I don't think it is. It's a tough one to undo, but I don't think it's crazy to see a future in which it's like, yeah, you know what? Clients need a lot of really dynamic front-end JavaScript functionality. I think, and you know, as much as I love Hotwire, maybe they do need that React front-end. How will that affect my business? Probably positively. How will I like it? Ah, <laughs> it'll sting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I bet the sting will wear off pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you put yourself in your manager's shoes, then you're hiring, training, teaching. So you're not digging into the code base all the time anyway. So there's that. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, remember at Block, there was a time where there was a, it felt to us like a war. I don't think much of this was as obvious to students and to the public, but there was a war over how are we going to evaluate the quality of these developer boot camps. In other words, in 2012, there were like three of us. 2013, 2014, there's hundreds, if not thousands. And if you're a prospective student, how are you supposed to evaluate them against each other? And so we were online, a brick and mortar boot camp, and we eventually evolved our positioning away from this. But we very much, probably incorrectly, definitely incorrectly, saw brick and mortar boot camps as competition. And eventually we realized that was foolish. But early on, we were kind of new to it and everybody wanted to use the placement rate, which is not unreasonable. Okay, of the people that you let in, how many of them get jobs? Very simple, very straightforward, very black and white. That was a metric that we fought against because we let anybody in. If you wanted to enroll, you could enroll. We weren't limited by brick and mortar capacities. We were limited by the number of great mentors that we could find. That was the primary bottleneck. And then the management and organizational structure to support that, all of those mentors. mentoring. So the placement rate actually did not, genuinely did not accurately convey how good our program was. Because if we just did the basic math, our placement rate is much lower because not everybody wants a job. So we're like, okay, when we publish our jobs report, it's like, oh, well, here's our placement rate, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Okay, well, what are all the freaking asterisks? Well, it's like, well, here's the percentage of people that wanted jobs. So within that segment, we're like 95%. Eventually, though, like we had a really great board member that gave it to us right between the eyes. She's like, you guys have to stop waffling. The industry has decided that this is the metric. 
So you have to use this metric. You have to play ball. It doesn't matter if you have a better way. You have to do it the way the industry does it. You have to become competitive in the market. The market has evolved. You have to evolve with it. That was a very tough pill to swallow. Yeah. But it was correct. And ultimately, you know, it was a good thing for the business. But so anyway, that's where it comes to mind. <laughs> well, Dave, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic conversation with you. As we wrap up, are there any other things that you'd like to share with Indie Rails community? Well, I'll just say that I appreciate you guys letting me come on and chat with you. It's been fun to talk with you about all these topics as well. It's not something I get to talk about very often in this duration, in this depth, yeah. which is really fun. And you guys are great hosts and great conversationalists. I think the only thing I would pitch or at least end with my part would be like, I'm working on this agency of learning thing. If you are either an early career developer or a junior developer, you're looking for a job and you'd like to join, get in touch. We'd love to have you. And simultaneously, if you're a senior developer and you want to pitch in, we'll figure out how to make it work. Please come join us as well. The juniors need you. So that's what I'll end with. And where can people find you online? Sure. I'm dpaola2 on Twitter. That's probably the easiest place. Email me, daviddavepaola.com. I try to respond to all emails. We'll include all that in the show notes. Thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, thanks, guys. Have a great day.